All right, everybody, we are back. This is the Recovery Lab podcast series. Again, my name is Drew Hassan, and I have my co-host, Daniel Anderson. Welcome. Uh, this is podcast episode number 14. I can't believe we've already done that many. Uh, so the general spiel, the introduction is the same. Uh, we want to promote uh, a, ser- a system uh a community here comment a lot uh give constructive criticism if you got some suggested topics you want to talk about offer those up anything from just recovery to the 12 steps a particular step psychology of recovery uh realistic where the rubber hits the road uh practice tips for practicing your recovery uh nominate people to be on the podcast Again, it is only with your direct involvement and interactivity that we will succeed in providing a comprehensive platform for recovery. If you know of something that could be beneficial for somebody in recovery, offer that up in the comments. My general example is you can get Narcan at the Pines or from Mr. Moore's Bike Shop in Hattiesburg. Uh, Again, we still ask for your financial support. You can cash at me at hashtag Daniel Hassan. And in furtherance of not just having uh, a boring and pointless begathon, we have, I think they're the best looking hoodies I've ever seen. We had them made up with the help of Mary Hodge. Thank you. Uh, And they are for sale. You can check them out on uh, the Recovery Lab or Drew Hassan or Daniel Anderson's Facebook page. Uh, The money goes to a good source. You can see we are trying to make it sound better, and thus be more enjoyable for the listeners. Finally, you will see we've got a fancy table, and we have fancy chairs, and those are a direct result of the kindness and generosity of Denise and Elizabeth at the McCoy House. So thank you. We appreciate it. Uh, These are the McCoy House mixers, and uh, we couldn't do it without y'all's help. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Without further ado, we welcome... Don Fawcett. Thank you for being here. How about a little introduction? Oh, it's a pleasure, Drew. I'm uh, Don Fawcett. Um, I grew up in Canton, Mississippi with uh, Drew's mother and aunt, and uh, we we have uh, been close friends for a long, long time. Well, I won't tell you how many years because I'd be giving away his mother and his aunt's age, but long time. Um <laughs> I went to uh, Mississippi State and got degrees in psychology, sociology, biblical archaeology. I then went to Millsaps, got a chemistry degree. I went to the University of Mississippi, got a medical degree. Um, I then went to Duke University and did a facial plastic surgery practice, um, which I had here in Jackson um, for about... A little over 25 years, um, I fell in the operating room, had an injury to my spine, had 13 major spine surgeries, ended up addicted to opiates, and then I realized how doctors, including myself, were prescribing opiates far too much. Um, and so then I transitioned into addiction medicine, which I now practice. Uh, my practice is uh, 
with the medical associates of Vicksburg. We have uh, two practices, one in Vicksburg, one at Merritt Hospital in South Jackson. Um, also have uh, two clinics, an adolescent clinic in Oxford and an adult clinic in Oxford. Um, <clears throat> I can keep going if you want me to roll on. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm enjoying listening. I, my first thought was, uh, I mean, these chairs are great because they were given to us. I don't know how ergonomically <laughs> correct they are. Is your back all right? Back's fine. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as I've, I've, as I've journeyed through the life of addiction and done a lot of uh, introspection, what I learned was that I really had an addicted brain, even as a young child, even when I was growing up with, with your mother and your aunt. Um, I just didn't know what to call it. And so when, when I got of age where I could afford to go get some counseling, I went and sought counseling and, and you know, my, one of my psychologists said, I don't know why you come to see me anymore. You know what I'm going to say before I say it. But guess what? I wasn't any better. Right. And it's because nobody knew that I had addictive type thinking. I figured that out after I got into addiction and started realizing there were some traumas in my life. Most people who have serious addiction problems have some sort of traumatic event in their life. Um, and there was a family history of alcoholism, but I didn't like alcohol, so I didn't think I got the gene. Well, guess what? the gene manifests itself in different ways. Real quick, and I hate to interrupt you. No. Do you happen to have a number or a percentage of individuals that struggle struggle with drug and alcohol addiction who also have childhood trauma involved with their story? Is there a number? There, 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 there is a number, and as I recall, it's somewhere between 60 and 70 percent. Okay. It's a large that, number. That means that... 60 to 70 percent of people who suffer childhood traumas will develop uh, substance abuse. Well, I would, I don't know if I would put it that way, Drew. I would say 60 to 70 percent of people who have substance use issues have, have had a traumatic event in their life. Sure. And it doesn't have to be a, a, a catastrophic traumatic event in their life. Um, I, I could not realize that any events in my life were catastrophic. And, and I guess indeed they weren't, but they were, they were however, traumatic. Right. My father had throat cancer when he was about you guys' age, and it took him out of the workforce. Uh, he did have a drinking history. Um, my mother was the sole support of the family, and while she did quite well, she was a woman back in the 60s, right. and so she didn't make nearly the same amount of money that a man doing the same job did, sure, right? Sure. Um, uh, we, we lived in a, an extended family that consisted of my grandmother and aunt, my father, myself, and so there's that fi family dy dynamic that creates some instability. And so all of that 
while my father was a good father, he was absent because he was sick for a long period of time, right? Right. And, and so you take all of that and you look at it. There, there was never any abuse or anything like that. I had a very loving family. But there's just, there were just some things absent in a young man's life um, that, that created instability in the way I saw life, in the way I saw myself, um, and then when you add to it the fact that I had an addictive brain that was being cultured in that in that environment, in that media uh, medium, so to speak, uh, it produced a, a lot of thinkings characteristic of drug addicts. We refer to those as catastrophic thinking, right? right? We've all heard that expression before, right? And so I engaged in a lot of catastrophic thinking. I will give you one example. I don't think your mother even knew this story. Uh, But when I was an adolescent, um, I had a pellet gun. And I saw a plane fly overhead, and I pointed that pellet gun at that plane and shot at it. And then all of a sudden, I started to panic thinking, what if I shot that plane and it crashed, right? I mean, What nope. age were you at this point? Oh, I was probably 12, 13, mm-hmm. something like that. But the point is that that, was, that is a memory that I have that far back that indicated that I was engaging in catastrophic thinking there. Sure. And it just grew as I got older. I engaged in catastrophic thinking. I had a fear of failure. Uh, because in school, um, I was just a mediocre student. I had ADD. I had uh, I had dyslexia, and back then, we didn't treat that right. And so I was a mediocre student, and I go through school, and um, those they're reinforcing these uh, negative self-image components to your thinking. That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. And so I get I get into high school, ninth grade, and they put me in all these advanced courses, advanced classes with your mother and other friends of ours. And I thought, what in the world am I doing in these advanced classes? And then they put me in uh, high school algebra. And I was just making C's in just regular math and struggling at that. And so the next catastrophic memory that I have is, oh, I'm going to fail. And so I, I had a tremendous fear of failure. And so I started, you know how in school they say work the odd problems, or that's what they used to tell us to do. Well, I'd work the odds and the evens. And I'd work them until I got everyone right. And so... This hypervigilance yes, 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 yeah, 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 to yeah, combat yeah, yeah. Yes. the negativity. Absolutely. Per- perfectly put. Um, and then all of a sudden, I made an A in algebra. And so then from that negative aspect, I said, well, I can apply this same theory to these other things. But the basis of my motivation was not wanting to fail. Right? right? There was always that anxiety. It served me well. I did really well in college. 
you know, I did really well in medical school. I got into medical school off of that. That's but it, it was the it was the fear of failure that was motivating me. Okay, so you fast forward, and I'm I'm in the surgical world. I'm in the facial plastic surgery business, where everybody critiques everything that you do, and your patients expect perfection. And so did I. <clears throat> and but but what was motivating me for the to the for the perfection outcome was the fear of failure, the fear of getting sued, so on and so forth. And so Because that would ultimately be evidence that you really are a bad that's, person that's and you really exactly, are stupid and that, you really are yeah, all yeah, those things that yeah, you fear. I, that's exactly right. And so you know, I, I used that, but think about the stress that I was under because I was doing all of these complicated cases, and I and I worked with a neurosurgeon and a and an ear, nose, and throat doctor. We did some complicated cancer cases involving the the brain and, and the face, and um, sometimes the outcomes were just not good, right. and um, and yet I would. I, I thought you meant of the. I mean, not that surgery solely for vanity is less complicated yeah. than surgery to but you're reconstructing faces because somebody may have had uh cancer cancer or some car wrecks okay yeah yeah all that kind of stuff i did the stakes uh, are still extremely high yes yes and um and so while I was in the operating room, I was extremely focused, and so I wasn't worried about failing. I was worried about just doing the next right thing. But then I would go home, and I would think about some event in the operation that may not have gone exactly as I wanted it to, and then I would worry, I would catastrophize over whether that's going to be a serious problem and until I saw that patient back, and sometimes I would follow them for weeks before I knew that the outcome was going to be okay, I obsessed over that. Okay, so I've got all this stuff going on in my head. And then one day, I, uh, I had a migraine headache and uh, went to the doctor, and he gave me some Norco. You know what Norco is? It was, and yes, uh, we're familiar. Yeah, Dang. and and I thought, Shazam. My worries have gone. My focus is much better. I'm energized, um, and I'm not worried about anything. And so, I thought that that was a normal reaction. To opiates, it is not a normal reaction to opiates. It's what we call an idiosyncratic reaction, and the real reaction is you give a Norco to my wife, and she's sound asleep in five minutes, right? right. You give a Norco to me, I'm, I'm Chatty Kathy, and I'm the life of the party, and I'm warm and fuzzy, and I have just a peace, or I had a peace until it wrecked my life. So um, I decided instead of drinking, I would go home at night, and at 6 o'clock, I'd take a Norco. Sounds and, reasonable. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. That, that, Sounds so, good to me. So, yeah. so that's, that's what I say about 
drug addiction and alcoholism. We have this saying, as many of you know, that it's cunning, baffling, and powerful. I say it's cunning, baffling, powerful, and persuasive. Absolutely. Because it persuaded me that it was okay for me to take a, a Norco or two at 6 o'clock instead of having a scotch and water, right? Right. And, um, and I did that for years. And then I go to California to a meeting. And um, I was on the advisory board for uh, uh, Allergan Pharmaceutical that, that makes a lot of the injectables and it makes Botox. And I was an FDA investigator for Botox. So I'm the first doctor in the state using Botox. So I'm out there advising Allergan on Botox. And 6 o'clock Jackson rolls around. But what time is it? In- That's 3 o'clock. Right. Yeah. And I'm thinking, ooh, something's wrong. I don't feel good. Your body was used to it. Yeah, right, right, right. But I ignored it. And so then I kept on taking it. And I had this fall in the operating room. And um, it legitimized my use in my head of taking opiates, right? I mean, I had chronic pain. I needed. To, I, I deserved to be pain free, like everybody else. Did your use grow? Beyond? Oh, I mean, yeah. It's a lot more powerful than Norco oh, out oh, there. Oh, yeah. So, so what ended up happening is two Norco ended up in five. Five ended up in ten. Ten ended up in fifteen a day. Right. Uh, and and so. Then I have an automobile accident. I get a whiplash, and I lose temporarily use lose the use of my right arm, and I have another operation, and that legitimized me even more. Even more, and then I got plugged into chronic pain management, and the pain doctor gave me all sorts of long-acting morphine and fentanyl patches. And I would prick a fentanyl patch and put a drop on my tongue. Sure. I mean, you know, it's just by the grace of God that I'm still here today, okay? And so that rocked on. And then in 2013, um, pricking, to get the juice out of the the fentanyl patch, I mean, this had to have been causing a tremendous amount of whether it's at the fore or not of personal strife with you, you're a physician right. and knowing there's no way to legitimize getting the juice out of the pain patch. Yeah. I mean, or well, were you able to convince yourself that it was? Yeah, absolutely. I was, here's how I did it. Uh, I, the board of medical licensure found out about my chronic pain. And they said, you cannot practice medicine if you've got chronic pain. So, as long as you take your medicine as prescribed and periodically have drug tests to make sure that you're taking your medicine and you have periodic reviews by your doctors to make sure that you're safe to practice medicine, you're good. So, they, they, they gave me license to use and to practice medicine at the same time, right? Um, But in my head, I told myself, well, I give pain medicine to people all the time so they can function. Why can't I take it and function? Um, And so then I get intervened on 
in uh, 2013. The, the philosophy changed, and it said the board no longer would allow you to practice medicine if you're taking narcotics. And uh, so I go to treatment in 2013, and um, through 90 days of inpatient, and I, then I did... I did 90 days of outpatient, and I was under a contract to the medical licensure board for five years where I was drug tested and, and went to see psychiatrists and psychologists and all sorts of things. Um, but here's what, here's what may you two guys may find interesting. If I tell you that being a drug addict is one of the four best things that ever happened to me, would you find that strange or no? I would completely agree with you. I get it. I mean, yeah. I have not always felt like that, but it... I do today. I mean, yeah. I'm grateful to have the recovery lessons I've gotten. Right. So this is what I tell my patients today when I tell them that. I said the four best things that ever happened to me, in order, accepting Jesus, marrying my wife, adopting my two children, and finding recovery. Because the recovery piece allowed me to have a better relationship with Jesus, a better relationship with my wife, a better relationship with my children. I have a, and a better relationship with yourself, a better relationship with myself because I don't have unrealistic expectations out of me. I'm grateful for every day that I have on the face of this earth. I love what I do. Even if I were independently wealthy, I would still practice addiction medicine. Uh, I like it more than do, doing the plastic surgery. Um, and I see lives changed. I see lives saved. Unfortunately, I've seen a few of my patients die from the disease. It's inevitable. Um, but it, it is truly rewarding. And I am now, the term I use in meetings is needing to be right-sized. I was not right-sized. When I had gone to Duke and had a successful plastic surgery practice and ended up being listed as best doctors in America, I thought I, I thought I was hot stuff, right? Sure. And um, In the world's eyes, you were. In, in the world's eyes. And that's exactly it. I don't care about the world's eyes now. Uh, what I care about today is uh, this, the thing I tell myself, today is it's really not all about me. When I'm focused on being rightly related to God and rightly related to my fellow man and serving God and serving my fellow man, then there is a peace in me, a natural high, if you will, much greater than any high I ever got when I was using opiates. Agreed. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. And that's what I tell people. And what's so unique about this disease is it takes us through the depths of hell. I mean, it's literally the darkest place that I could have been looking in that mirror and, and really hating, not just disliking, disliking, but hating every cell in that person's body that was looking back at me. Right. So we have this unique experience to be able to come from that. I don't know if you're like me in that, but I have this unbelievable ability to tap into... Wow, that's where I was in addiction. And mm. look what God can do in someone's life when that is removed. Right. And 
you, it's difficult to find that anywhere else. Um, and and it, it made you who you are today. And Lord willing, you, you like that individual today. Right. I, there's nothing I regret about yeah. my past today. Yeah, yeah, me either. And, you know, the, the, so I tell people this story because a lot of my patients beat themselves up over being a drug addict and, and over having uh, destroyed family issues. And I say, well, you know, if you get into recovery um, and you keep doing the next right thing, you can restore your life. Because my wife and family, they were about to leave me. Sure. And I said, now we've got a great relationship, you know. And I said, you need to go out there and, and, and start helping others in recovery. And th this is the one thing, if you were sitting before me uh, as a patient, uh, I would tell you the following at the end of our, our session. I would say, thank you so much because talking to you today is helping me stay sober. And hopefully what I tell you helps you to stay sober. And it's the gospel Absolutely. It is absolutely the gospel. Gratitude is a great place to live. So isn't that a funny thing, gratitude? So when I was in treatment, they, uh, they said, well, we want you every day to come in with a list of five uh, things you're grateful for, and it can't be the same things that you use. And I thought, well, that's going to be hard to do. Right. And, well, and, after about three days, uh, it's going to yeah. have dumb stuff on there like, well, my toothbrush is good. Right. And, have uh, you ever used a bad toothbrush? Though? Right. I mean, that's the thing. You know, I, the mint toothpaste is acceptable. <laughs> right. Right. I've got a few questions for you Shoot. that, that yeah. kind of, I'm getting off track from the gratitude thing. As a practitioner, like I almost hit you first rattle out the gate with, why are there drug addicts? Like, is there a physical deformity in the brain that makes these things more uh, likely than not? Um, and a lot of what I wanted to talk to you today about stems from this book called Chasing the Scream. I don't know if you've heard of I've heard it. Of it yeah. Okay, it, it was phenomenal. It was very interesting. And he talks about how we generally look at addiction wrong, and there are some facets of the book that I may or may not agree with you, but they're interesting to talk about and think about. But one of them is he offers up as um, an explanation for why just using the drug isn't enough to get you addicted to it. And he says, well, you're going to take grandma with her compound leg fracture, you know, hyper painful. And she's in the hospital and they give her morphine and she uses it for two weeks. And then she goes home and she takes her Norco and tapers off and then never has any other problems. Whereas, I mean, the, one of the main opiates that I abused was Dilaudid. And the first time I did it, I thought, I, I need to get more of that. Right. That felt good. And I don't know that I was physically addicted after the first time I used it intravenously. But it didn't take long. It didn't take long to develop that physical addiction. So what is it about the brain that becomes addicted? So there is a gene that they've identified that, uh, that makes you respond differently to opiates and any, any uh, addictive substances, benzodiazepines, you, you name it. There, uh -huh. there, there, yes, there is a gene there. And, and so... Uh, uh, when that gene is triggered, 
it starts forming pathways inside the brain that that help release dopamine. And there's a real good book out there called The Dopamine Nation, if you haven't read about it. I've uh, heard of it. Dopamine Nation. It's very good, and it talks about this. And and so here's, here's a basic um, example or uh, understanding of how this works. So uh, there's the prefrontal cortex, which is immediate gratification. Um, and then there... I mean the the basal the basal ganglia, which is the the immediate gratification. The prefrontal cortex regulates. It's your it's your executive function thing, and and so there's a communication between there, and so the basal ganglia says, "Give me more, give me more, give me more," and in turn it releases more dopamine, and so uh, when you start stimulating the basal ganglia. Then you you there is a pathway that is used to block the communication between the basal ganglia and the prefrontal cortex, so that you're all you're thinking about is the here and now. You're not thinking about the consequences because that that part of the brain is cut off, and so we know that if adolescents start using drugs, then there is a delay in maturation of that prefrontal cortex. And, and we know in... in and that's science. That's science. That's yeah, science. Yeah. That we know that in men in general, that portion of the brain is not mature till age 25. But if you're using drugs, then it delays that maturation as long as you're using. And you're just stuck in that basal ganglia, basically, thinking about what's next, you know, not worried about the consequences, not worried about going to jail, not not any of this stuff. What feels good that now. is executive function. That's the right. ability right. to forecast consequences and thus act to avoid them. Right. To play the tape through. That's right. That's right. You just don't do that. And the concept is foreign to you. And so when you sit down and you talk to an adolescent and you tell them where they are and that they lack the ability uh, to engage in good executive thinking, they're going to tell you, you don't know what you're talking about. My thinking is just fine. And perfect example in me, when I went to treatment, uh, they told me I needed three months of inpatient. And I thought, I said, you're crazy. Maybe six weeks to dry out, but I don't need three months. And the further I rolled along in treatment, the more I knew how sick I was. And at the end of three months, I realized I probably needed six months. And then I get in, in IOP, and it's becoming more apparent of how sick I really was. And that's that, that's that prefrontal cortex waking up, right? And in some cases, it, it can take up to five years before that wakes up. And so that's why we tell people, when you get out, you need a sponsor. He is your external prefrontal cortex. That's a, that's a right? beautiful way to put it. Good one, right? yeah. Right, right. Uh, because everybody thinks that they their thinking is good. I thought so. It, it, one of the, beg- the best benefits in my life to, cha- to being willing to challenge 
how I think about things was finding myself with a law degree panhandling at a gas station. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> I mean, really, I'm sitting there with, I mean, people that would, you know, cut you uh, before they would call 911 for you and thinking, this is your fault. Right. Right. (laughs) There's nobody else on the planet who's gotten you in hot water like you had. This is a direct result of your poor decisions. Right. Couldn't blame anybody else. And... I have carried that with me, you know, through throughout my recovery. Well, maybe I should bounce this idea off of somebody else. And what an awesome opportunity to have somebody that's gone through exactly what you're going through and can be that sounding board, you know. Like, normal people don't have that. Like, they have therapy, but there's not somebody that they can call daily that they're instructed to call daily and let that individual think for you at least for the very first six months. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that doesn't exist in the real world. Right. And, and the, beauty, the beauty of practicing addiction medicine is that I can sit down and talk to someone, and, I, and first of all, I tell them exactly that I'm a drug addict in recovery. And then, and then that levels the playing field. They know I'm not looking down on them. Right. And... And it also, I, I know exactly how they're thinking and what they're going to say and how they're going to try to manipulate me and when they're feeding me crap and, and you know, I call them on it. Right. And so it works, it works quite well for And me. you can't learn that intuitiveness in a book. Uh-uh. No. No, because it's more than intuition, isn't it? It's, it's experiential, right? right? Where you've been where they are, you know what they're feeling, um, at least a lot of the time, not every time. And, um, and, and so, you know, my goal, so let me get to another topic that you, you may or may not want to talk to, but you're familiar with the drug Suboxone, right? Look, I believe me, it's on my list of things to talk to you about. Okay. Of course. All right. So, um, it is a great drug. It, 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 I have a license to prescribe Suboxone. You have to have a separate license. You do have to have a separate license to do it. And, um... And it has changed people's lives that just can't get sober and stay sober. Um, it's, it's put people back at work. It's restored families. It's, it's saved people's lives. And so I know when you go to some AA meetings or NA meetings, if you tell them that you're taking that, then they'll, they may tell you to get out, that you're, you're not sober. So my definition of sobriety now is that you're functional, that you're rightly related to your family, that you're gainfully employed, and that you're safe. Look, I, I came down on the anti-Suboxone for a long time. Yeah. I thought it was a an unnecessary crutch. Trading one thing for another. Trading one thing for another. It's nothing it's it's high tech and abuse. It's it's not gonna be I mean, we should just get people sober. And Keenan Wald from the Pines and Katie Hill, he's a therapist in Columbus, kind of changed my mind on it. Yeah. And his general idea was, look, people relapse and they die. They do. And they die before they can get back in here because fentanyl is, is a, an unforgiving task master. Right. It, it exacts a complete toll on people. 
you can go out and have just a, you know, a few bad, make a few poor choices. Mm-hmm. and Or just one poor choice. End up dead. That's all it takes. And his idea was, if I can get somebody on Suboxone, then I can correct their life. I mean, he wasn't saying that he's, you know. Yeah, gonna, I, I, right, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. If I can get them on Suboxone, then they can remedy some of their consequences. They can challenge and change some of their behavior patterns and thought power, thought processes until they begin to get some of the promises come true for them. Right. And he said, look, we can worry about tapering off later. Right. We can always get off of it later. Right. So where I That's once thought tool. Suboxone was just, Fooey, I think I'm on in favor of yeah, it now. Yeah, it, it, it saves people's lives. Now, once I get people stabilized on it, then as I've gained their trust, um, and I think they're they're mentally uh, in a place where they might want to consider trying it without it, I will engage them in that discussion, and if they're interested. Then I gradually taper them off um, at a rate that they can tolerate, and and I don't do it quickly at le- no less than six months, and I may taper them off on a year, <clears throat> because there is a psychological component to taking suboxone. You know, just the, the just the idea. The placebo effect. Y- y- yes. Yeah. Just the idea that you, you've got something to replace your drug of choice. And it does actually change, reduce your cravings and that sort of thing. And so if you take that away from it, the anxiety of not having something to put in your mouth increases. And when you push up anxiety levels, then the, then, then the, the brain, your disease starts talking to you saying, well, you need something to make this anxiety go away. Right. Right. So we do it. We do it very, very slowly, um, and and I stop when I get them down to a lower level if they just can't go any further. Because I'd rather have them at a lower level than a higher level, right? Right. Uh, but it's it's with a lot of counseling. I do a lot of counseling along with my my uh, treatment of, of their disease with Suboxone. Do you feel the same way about methadone? Mm-hmm. So in essence, you're saying with Suboxone and Methadone, anything like this is going to help you get off an opiate. MAT. Yeah, MAT. What you're saying is, to the individual that's coming into your office, in essence, you're saying, you are on fire right now. You're literally on fire. Here's this medication that will get you out of the fireplace, and we can we can then start to discuss our different path. But that Suboxone, to me, is, is that mechanism that can get somebody out of the fire is that is that accurate that's totally accurate yes yeah well anything that will keep an opiate addict from withdrawing they're going to be in favor of that uh-huh. yeah yeah um now the, you ask about methadone uh, it it methadone is much less forget forgiving i mean you can overdose on methadone and so i don't have a license for methadone and it's blowing my mind they make y'all have separate licenses for that. Mm-hmm. That's like an attorney having a license to do estate work. And then, yeah. well, I got a license to divorce. And yeah. How many different licenses are there? Well, there, there's a license for methadone, I believe. There's a, I know there's a license for Suboxone. And then there's just your... So the license we're talking about is through the DEA. Okay. Okay. It's, not, it, it's, a, it's a DEA waiver to prescribe whatever. Like Suboxone has their waiver, Methadone has their waiver, 
Um, and they make you they make you, you get a different DEA number like for prescriptions. Yeah, you do. There was a period in my life where I thought I'm going to dummy up prescriptions. Yeah. And I, thank I, God I didn't. I had a nurse who did that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I had, a, I had a nurse who did that. We think crazy things, so. yeah. <laughs> Look, I had it all planned out. I mean, I, we did. I had it going on. Yeah, so so the thing, the other thing I tell people about the disease of addiction, and I want everybody to know that it truly is a disease. And uh, it is. And that's science. That's definitely science. Um, is that addiction is the only disease that I know, at least in me that talks to me and it it my disease may tell me oh you know pills were your problem you can have a drink right yeah and i and i've got friends i've got doctor friends that alcohol was their demon and so they go through the recovery program that doctors go through and then next thing you know they're back in the program because they're popping pills right right so, so cross addiction is real. Cross addiction is it very all real. sets off the phenomenon of craving, and yeah, you're off to yeah, the yeah, races. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, and so um, my disease talks to me. My, I'm also a diabetic. My diabetes doesn't talk to me. I mean, it might say, "Well, eat a bowl of ice cream or something," but that's infrequent. I, I've got more resistance to that than I do my disease of addiction talking to me. And and so to combat that. I do things like this. I have my addiction practice. I go to meetings. I talk to my sponsor. Um, and in that way, I get educated as to what next trip trick my disease might play on me. Because it's, it's up to something. It's always, always up to something. It's a learned adversary. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is there any literature... I've seen this somewhere, and I forget where, that uh, draws a, a relation between blood sugar and addiction. Or things that impact your glycemic index. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not aware of that, but it would, it would be reasonable. Anything that throws off your metabolism in some way. Um, I think what I read was that there was some study that found that the participants in the study who were also in recovery, the ones that, I mean, I'm not going to say they were all on the keto or Atkins diet, but the ones that maintained a more level a blood sugar yeah, that, uh, level that would, yeah. and avoided spikes yeah. were uh, had, had longer recovery or could stave off relapse for longer and i didn't know if you knew anything well no i don't i, don't. I mean i'll look into it drew and see um i mean i'm not trying to put you on a research no, 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 project no no, no. I, I mean it it piques my curiosity it all makes sense um well i had a friend that was insulin dependent we went on a trip one time and i look over and he said man you know my blood sugar's out of whack he administered himself some insulin and then he's cry- he's over there crying and I was like, man, it's all right, buddy. I mean, you, you know, my grandfather was a day, and he was like, no, it just makes me real emotional. Uh, is yeah. that, I hadn't thought about that story in a thousand years. Um, so you're not saying, oh, yeah, I know exactly what he's talking about. So it must yeah, not be that I, common. I, I, I don't. I don't. I, I could surmise what he's talking about, but 
I don't know any factual okay. information in that. I've got friends that are insulin dependent, very brittle diabetics, and the lady I'm thinking about her her alarm will go off and her blood sugar will be down around you know fifty, and she'll hit her pump and it'll go back up. And I don't see any la uh, any labile emotions going on there, but it's an interesting theory. Um, but um, anyway, it, you know, it's it's. A, I'm so thankful for my disease, and it's it's made me a better person. It allows me to have empathetic uh, feelings towards my my patients and be a better doctor. And so, as long as the good Lord allows me to walk on the face of this earth, and He allows me to do this, I'm going to do it. I love it. We've got about 15 minutes. How would you feel? I, Go ahead. I've got a couple couple other questions. Okay. Um, what do you think about the marijuana? And Because this is about to become yeah. a real problem for the recovery community. Right. So, uh, I, you know, I also work for the health department. And... Uh, and uh, Dr. Dan Edney, who is the new state health officer, um, is my partner in the addiction practice. And so we've talked about this. We do not prescribe medical marijuana. Um, I see too many people that start down that path and then it opens the gate for them to do other things. The marijuana maintenance program? Mar well, um, just marijuana in general. Um, Prescribing it for anxiety yeah, or depression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I will. I, I do have two or three patients that have engaged me in conversation about that, and I've said, well, you probably would be a candidate for it, um, but you can't be a patient in my Suboxone clinic if you're on medical marijuana. The DEA will not allow you to prescribe Suboxone if somebody's taking marijuana. So, do I think it has a place? Probably. But I think, I think that in Colorado that's been demonstrated to be catastrophic because it's gotten out of hand, so I'm told. Um, there. They, they've, they've, they've gotten far too liberal with it, I think, there. You know, it's it's proven that you smoke a lot of marijuana and you'd lose IQ points. Right. And um, well, then I'm lucky to have any IQ points. <laughs> I love marijuana. I loved everything about it. Uh, interestingly enough, once I realized that I liked IV drug use more, I quit smoking pot altogether. I didn't sure. hardly ever smoke cigarettes yeah. either. Right. I mean, I I like marijuana. I like the way it makes me feel. And I will like it two minutes after I wake up, and I will like it till I go to sleep that I night. I mean, I, I understand. Uh, right. And I, I, and I probably would too, but I've just never tried it. Yeah, it was my best friend throughout my, my whole addiction. Whatever whatever I was going through at the time, marijuana was there, and, and it was it played a role in my life. Look, I have been hyper-fortunate not to have needed 
any kind of pain medicine or, you know, not really very ill. I do have some legitimate back problems, but I've been able to keep those under control. And because the minute I take something, I'm going to scratch that itch and I'm going to remember how good Delauded meth feel. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean... Yeah, that's the way I am. Marijuana involved. would make would increase the likelihood that I would use IV drugs, and that's why I think it's a bad idea. So and that's why it's called a gateway drug. Right? right. I believe it. Yeah. And now, you know, it's 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 uh you've got meth in, in embedded in it, you know. Um I I see people coming in with THC and methamphetamines on their drug screens. You got fentanyl, uh Fentanyl's laced, the scariest thing out there. Right, laced uh, marijuana and, and fentanyl laced meth. I've seen that as well. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You find it interesting. Maybe you won't. Around here, uh, most of the problem that I see is uh, opiates and benzos. In the north part of the state, in Oxford, it's methamphetamines. Right. Makes sense. I mean, I would. You know, I was on and, and fentanyl. Right. Yeah. Do people just go see? Will will your patients? Do you have some that seek out purposefully fentanyl, or they just by mm-hmm. by accident they're addicted to it because it's all in the heroin? Well, it, some of them seek it out. Yeah, that is true. Some of them seek it out. Um, how, I mean, logistically, how? I mean, you you cannot measure what you're what right. you're getting. It, it's right. You know, this much and you feel good, and this much and you're dead. Right. Like, and that's, that's, right. that's, that's right. not hyperbole. No. So and how do how do they they don't apportion know. the they dose? They don't know what they're getting. They 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 rely on what their dealer tells them. And he's he's who you should. He's trust. looking out for you. Right. That's crazy. Well, yeah. I don't know what people are going to do about the fentanyl. That that book I mentioned, Chasing the Scream. He pretty much advocates for the decriminalization of all drugs. Mm-hmm. And he points to Portugal who did that. Yeah. And he said, you know, they've decriminalized everything from crack to cannabis. Have at it. And he mm-hmm. said they saw, you know, a, a, down, a downturn in their overdose deaths. deaths, And, I mean, I don't Long term, that can't be good for a society. That's exactly where I was going to go. You, you, can, you can decriminalize stuff like that. But what it does to the society in general, I mean, most of these people um, have to get the funds somewhere to buy this stuff. Does he talking about giving it to them as well? I don't. I think that, no, it's not given to them. It, but it because it is dispensed through the state, the cost is greatly decreased. Uh, I mean, you've got to think. You know, so it's regulated. Is what it's it's regulated. Uh, I guess they they test. I mean, how do you guarantee that the heroin doesn't have fentanyl in it? Right. I mean, you're going to test it all. I mean, I'm sure there's some of that. There's also some of the. Uh, you know they they give syringes. They had a their big problem was the heroin was killing everybody. I mean, like it's not killing everybody in other countries, but. Right. I think that it was the overdose overdose deaths that were that was the impetus for their change, and so I, I don't know, I don't recall if there was a limit to how much you can get or if you 
Yeah. You have to sign up if you get a stipend or. Yeah. Well, you know, if you look at the Roman Empire, as it it began to decline, there was a lot of debauchery and you know alcoholism and stuff like that, and so I can't see a society functioning at a very high rate if they legalize drugs like this that increase the crime rate, you know, decrease the productivity, um, decrease the work habits and things like that. I can't, I can't see it as being a recipe uh, for anything but disaster. Yeah. Well, I don't, th- I think the problem is that I don't know. I don't know that if the state gave away drugs, I don't know if that would make more drug addicts. I don't. I mean, you know, talking about that gene from earlier. My mm-hmm. father had prescribed for him for twenty plus years yeah. a virtually unlimited supply of opiates, right? And zero times I saw him abuse it. He would take half a Norco and then lie on the couch and he may not take another one for however long. Right. And I, you know, reflecting back on that, he just did not have whatever component in his brain or maybe his prefrontal cortex did not get sufficiently cut off from his basal root ganglion. What'd you? Well, it's the midbrain. The midbrain. Yeah. 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 Uh, But in Portugal, surely the impact of having nobody ever get sober would would cause problems. That's what I'm saying. It, yeah. What it's going to do to society, right? Absolutely yeah. corrupting. Are we nearing the? Are, we are. Do you want to? Do you want to? Look, I wrote some of your your I wrote your questions. Hidden. All right. So starting today, and with every podcast after this, we are going to ask our guests uh, to answer five rapid fire questions. Okay. Um, are you good with these? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Even, even though I've got ADD? Yes, yes. Um, and they don't have to be long answers. They can just be simple answers. We have five to go through, and we have six minutes. Okay. Um, number one. Look, nothing's going to happen if it's in six and a half minutes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the SWAT's going to pull up, and we're all take to jail. Um, okay. All right, so what does, number one, what does serenity look like to you? Serenity to me is where I have a peace of mind about where I am in the moment, that I feel good about myself, I feel good about my present, I feel good about my past, and I'm optimistic about my future. I like it. Um, Number two, what was your biggest life lesson? My biggest life lesson is was that um, I took... I took things more seriously than I should and and that um, I was too critical of myself and that rubbed off on me so that I was expecting more from people than than just letting them be themselves. I like it. I like it. Um, when do you feel it is appropriate to offer someone help? Whenever, whenever I see the opportunity, I offer help. And um, what are you most grateful for? I'm most grateful for the opportunity to be alive today and to be able to help uh, other drug addicts and alcoholics to try to find the serenity that I have found. 
Um, you know, one of the things that used to frustrate me uh, when, when I would sit in meetings is, uh, and this was five years into, into sobriety, they would say, and you've, you've both heard this expression, wait till the miracle happens. And I thought, well, when is the miracle going to happen for me? Thinking that it was something that should happen to me, not something that I should change in myself. And so when, back in uh, the fall of 2020, I almost died from COVID. <clears throat> And I was standing there at the foot of my bed, gasping for air, too weak to walk to the bathroom, using a urinal, and I had this conversation with God. I said, Lord, you know, I may not leave this place alive. And he said to me, that's taken care of. Let me make a suggestion. You've run your life for all these years. Why don't you let me run your life and see how you like it? And I said, from now on, I will go where you want me to go. I will do what you want me to do. And I will say what you want me to say. And when I did that, the miracle started to happen in my life. It's beautiful. Beautiful. All right. Look, I, I'm not letting you off the hook just yet. Because okay. I would be, I have been wanting to have a physician on here since it started. Yeah. Can You got a few more minutes. And let I me got all, boys. Gentlemen, man, I got all the time you you want to spend with me. Cool. Okay. We all know that it is in the pursuit of greater dopamine production uh -huh. that addiction is born. Right. We want to feel good. Yeah. Okay. When the dopamine gets released, yeah. I take that hit, snort, shot, whatever. Mm. Where does it go? So it, it so it goes to the pleasure centers in the in the. It's released by yeah. where the. Yeah. And then it goes, it goes to, to the midbrain and it stimulates the midbrain. But what I didn't tell y'all is that dopamine is an essential neurotransmitter. And so once you start releasing excessive amounts of dopamine, there is a feedback mechanism that cuts back on the ability to re release dopamine so that you don't get critically low levels of dopamine. You can run out. You can, I mean, conceivably, but the brain has a has a feedback mechanism that stops that, right? And this is why you need more and more cocaine. Exactly, exactly. Is the restriction on the production of dopamine stemming from the use of a, a, a is that exogenous yeah. use? Uh, exogenous, yeah. Uh, uh, from an exogenous use of another substance. Right. Yeah. Is it substance specific no you can get dopamine release from several different ways i'm sorry i'm asked that the wrong oh, way i'm sorry uh i do a bunch of meth and uh, it feels good uh, and my brain says you got to hold up fella you're yeah. taxing the dopamine production right and then i do heroin well, it, it, well it, it, it's an unknown pleasure yeah but you're st still what you're trying to do is protect the excess release of dopamine to critically low levels. So it really doesn't matter what you do. You will get an incremental increase from changing substances, which I think is what you're asking. Yes. But there's still that feedback mechanism that shuts it down, down regulates it, I guess, is a 
turns the thermostat down so that you can't is dopamine and it's in a person that's not an, a drug addict mm-hmm. it is used to i mean it's it's, it's a, kind it's it, a, it has a benefit in you yeah, know like, it's an, it's a neurotransmitter that that works in a lot of different systems but it's the primary neurotransmitter that drives the pleasure centers how and it is a necessary component of your brain chemistry right. uh, because right, i know when you pet a puppy or a woman breastfeeds, right. it releases oxytocin, yeah. and it so I, right. But you also get a dopamine release from all that. Same from those things yeah. too. Yeah. How can how can drug addicts newly in recovery yeah. best help their brain chemistry uh, come back to whatever is normal? Well, abstention is the number one thing. The number two thing, it, and this is what we teach in our adolescence. In, uh, in our recovery center in Oxford. We have, uh, as drug addicts, we think that the rules apply to everybody else, but I'm an exception. At least that's the way I thought. And you're, so, not, you're not alone. Right. Yeah, right. Terminally unique. That's Terminally right. unique. Terminally unique. That's exactly right. And so we've got these pathways that are built in our brain that are detrimental to our our health and well-being but it's like a wagon that falls off in the rut it's easier to stay in that rut than to try to come out of it right and so what we teach uh our our young men in 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 our treatment program is to do certain things that are regimented you get up at the same time you make your bed you go to eat you go to class you go do your exercise um and you do it when somebody else tells you to do it. And there's pushback from that because it's all about me. And so by engaging in healthy things like this, going to meetings, uh, talking to other people who are in recovery um, that have longer sobriety than you, talking to your sponsor, reading your big book, you are building new pathways that help cover up those ruts that you fall off in and make them more shallow and more shallow and more shallow until you, 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 they're, they're covered up. And, um, and so, and at the same time, by accomplishing things, um, of a positive nature and having a structured environment, you get incremental releases of dopamine because you're being successful, you're being productive, you're seeing value in what you do, um, you're seeing success in what you do, and you get incremental releases of dopamine in a more natural manner. I don't know if I answered your question. Or not. No, you, you absolutely did. I mean, I have recently been fascinated by the, the interplay between physical addiction and behavior patterns. Mm-hmm. It's just something I ruminate over. And so I have offered up, when I moved back to Jackson, I was living in a sober living house and I saw the benefit to having those road patterns in place. Mm. I went by somewhere that I wasn't accustomed to going by and I was flooded with these memories of, Mm. you know, using drugs that I, it was a shady motel. And I thought, isn't that how the seed gets planted? That's right is you are exposed to an unpleasant 
stimuli and then that promotes this negative thought pattern. And I mean, it took me a minute, you know, right. I went back there yeah. and I was able to arrest that corrupt thinking before yeah. it developed into, you know, right. well, let me go over there and see what's happening. Right. Uh, so that's why we tell people to change people, places and things. Right. And then, you know, when, when I would come home from treatment, I could not go to any restaurant that sold alcohol. And I thought, well, how ridiculous is that? Alcohol is not my issue. And, um, and, but anyway, there was a reason behind that, but I just did what they told me to do. And, and now I don't have a problem going anywhere about anything, but in the beginning I had to do all of that because those, those pathways, those ruts were still there and I could slip right off into it and the barn doors wide open. Right. What simple practices do you find to be the most beneficial to those in recovery? Oh, I get up every morning and, uh, you know, when I was in treatment, they would talk about um, getting on your knees and praying. And I thought, well, I don't need to get on my knees and pray. I can pray in any position that I'm in. But what I learned is that by getting on my knees, I'm acknowledging who's in control, who's above me, exactly who I am. So I get up every morning and I pray, and I pray for everybody. I pray for my patients when I drive to Vicksburg or drive to Oxford. I'm thinking about all my patients. I pray for them. I pray for people that I've dealt with in, in, in other ways. I read my Bible every day. Um, I'll read something uh, recovery-related, whether it's the Blue Book or something. Those are the things that I do today, um, and I talk to people in recovery. Not just my sponsor, but I'll I'll talk to other people that are in recovery um, as well. Is that the question? Yeah, that, that, that's it. Yeah. I'm almost done with my yeah. fleecing of the physician's brain here. Yeah. How do you, as a physician, how do you deal with when you have a patient that dies? Well, you know, it's hard. Because um, this has got to play. Yeah, that, it, it's hard. That right size you yeah. were talking about. Right. So I think of this young man about your, your guy's age. Um, very successful OR technician. He had a bad, uh, th- I think fentanyl was his drug of choice. He had a bad fentanyl problem. And he got it. He, he started coming to Sydney. I got him on Suboxone. He was back at work. He was successful. And he was morbidly obese, and he did something to his knee, and he ended up having to have surgery. And they put him on on opiates, and that led him back to fentanyl. And I read about him. There was a a crash over um, in Vicksburg where he tried to pass an 18-wheeler, and there was an oncoming car, and he, and he was killed from that. And so I'm not saying that when you have major surgery, you can't take opiates. You certainly can. And I just like to control how long you take them. Well, I'm glad you. Uh, this has prompted another question. So when you take Suboxone, it decreases its ability to allow how do you get on opiates if you're on Suboxone and you legitimately need opiates? Because it so you say you stop the Suboxone for at least twelve hours before your surgery. 
Okay. Yeah. So boxing quits working that fast. Uh huh. I mean, you you might get you, you might get a little bit of a of a uh, a withdrawal from it, but if you use so you can also take Suboxone and take a like dilaudid like you were talking about, and it will overpower. So nilo- so Suboxone has 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 naloxone in it, right? So it's, right. it's a blocker. To, so that if you take something, it's going to give you some blockade. But if you take something a really strong opiate, then you can. It's not going to do a whole lot of good. It'll do some good. Uh, you can overpower it, but usually. Uh, I'll have somebody stop their Suboxone um, 12 to 24 hours before, preferably 24, and uh, and then take the take the opiates for no longer than what the surgeon says is needed, and then I'll I'll get them taper them off of that and and or stop them on that and put them back on the Suboxone. Let's talk briefly about benzos. Okay. Why are benzos so bad? Well, because, you know, for me, I, I never got much out of a benzo. It just it, it put, put me to sleep. But some people can get, get high on it and, and get the dopamine effect from it. But most of the time, people take benzos because they suffer from a really high anxiety level and it mellows them out. And and so there's no everything's well with the world when they take a benzo. I guess I find it interesting because if I t- if I looked at Xanax, I was going to go to sleep right. for a long That's time. Right. I mean, yeah. didn't have any tolerance for it. Yeah. And then, but even when I did take it, it didn't make me feel good. Right. I, I guess I have. Does it work on a different chemical other than... Do- I mean, dopamine I associate with, that feels good. Yeah. yeah There's yeah. a sense of well-being, and it's like wearing a warm down jacket, and, you know, everything is fantastic. This euphoria. Okay. So, I'm going to go back to a personal experience. Opiates were my drug of choice, but if I didn't have an opiate... I would take a benzo or whatever I could take just to change the way I felt. Okay. Because I didn't like the way I felt. And that's true of most addicts that use poly substances. It's really still all about changing what's going on in your head, right? And so I would go to someone's house and... If I was out of something, I'd go rummage through their, their uh, my drug, kind of man medicine cabinet, yeah. medicine cabinet. And if I found, you know, if I found some Vicodin, or if I found some uh, phenobarbital, Tussianex, or if I found some uh, benzos, I would take those just to change the way I felt, change the way I was thinking, because I was just really unhappy. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to be unhappy. The avoidance. The avoidance. That's right. So I would take whatever was available. Now I, ne- I never did anything IV. I never did any math or anything. But I, I would. I, I will tell you. My my youngest daughter was on uh, Adderall. Adderall. Mm-hmm. And I 
take two or three of those before I go to work just to see if it would help me perform better. Right. Yeah. But again, the motivation behind it was the way I was thinking. I didn't like the way I felt. I didn't like who I was. Um, and I wanted to put something in there to change all of that. Right. It's a scary thing. I think I have exhausted about all of the questions I've got for you. I know as soon as you leave, I'm going to think, man, I meant to ask. <laughs> well, you call that. me. You got my phone number. Call me. All well, right. this has been awesome. Thank Dr. you so Foster, much. Dr. Foster, thank you so much. Pleasure's I appreciate all it. mine, guys. Thank Absolutely. you. Thank, thank you, sir. You. Thank you. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. In regards to your mother. I'll tell her. And Rooney. I'll tell her. Uh,